Hello, everyone. I'm Tom Nagorski, Executive Vice President of the Asia Society. Welcome to Asia in Depth. Today, a focus on one of the world's great faiths and its reach around the world. It's not news that more and more Americans are embracing Buddhism, or at least some of the tenets of Buddhism. Mindfulness, mindful meditation, Buddhist art, culture, and writings. Last year, we at the Asia Society hosted a series of programs under the heading Buddhism and Beyond. And what you're about to hear will give you an idea of just how profound the trend is. Dan Harris had been a television correspondent for more than a decade when he took to the airwaves one morning and basically panicked, with millions of viewers watching while he tried to read the news. Harris embarked on his own personal journey, a search for calm and greater control in his life, a search that led him to Buddhism and mindfulness, and then a book he wrote called 10% Happier. That book became a bestseller. There's now a 10% Happier app, and another book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. In this episode, Harris is joined by the renowned scholar of Tibetan Buddhism, Tupton Jinpa. Jinpa is a former monk who has been the principal English translator for the Dalai Lama's writings for more than three decades. Their conversation was about this spread of mindfulness and compassion meditation in the United States. Harris began by reflecting on a school shooting in Florida that had occurred just a day before and wondering whether these old Buddhist principles might somehow offer hope in combating the scourge of gun violence in America. We sit here the day after yet another school shooting. Um, This one in Florida. Do you think compassion meditation, compassion training, and you're in the business of this, you have, again, as I I referenced before this, uh, this secularized uh, uh, protocol for teaching compassion uh, that you uh, came up with uh, alongside Stanford University, taught all over the world as I understand it. Do you think teaching compassion meditation could help prevent events like this or is it just like the weather that you know once in a while somebody who's just mentally ill gets a hold of a lethal weapon and this kind of thing is gonna happen? So it's, it's, it's really, Difficult. I mean, for example, things like teaching compassion, uh, teaching meditation, or mindfulness, these are long-term strategies. So it's very difficult to make the immediate connection and say, here's a solution, do this, and nothing like that would happen. That would be naive. Um, um, But one thing that perhaps taking compassion more seriously can do is to allow the people within important sectors like school system uh, to pay a bit more attention to the individual's differences and pay more attention to those who are struggling. So clearly the person uh, who did the shooting had a difficult, of course it's not to excuse what the horrible thing that he did, but the warning signs were there. So if if the compassion is larger part of the society's value and is something that is made explicit, then one thing about making our value explicit is that it sets a bar. And 
people who are part of that community know that they are expected to behave in a particular way. So those are ways in which something like taking compassion seriously can help. But it would be naive to say teaching compassion and teaching meditation would have prevented it. And because part of that has to do with the, the, the reality of the complicated American relationship with guns. You know, uh, human beings are very complex creatures. Uh, they will always be people with difficulties. And we are all, each one of us, carry the seed for frustration, for anger, for hatred, for jealousy. You know, you know I've been a monk for over 25 years in my life. To this day, I know my own limitations. I know I can get angry. I know I can get jealous. I know I can get frustrated. I know I can get resentful. So which suggests that these tendencies are very deeply rooted. But the difference is those one would hope, those who have paid a bit more attention to the way their mind works, are not going to act them out, are not going to, you know, going to allow the mind to go crazy, because the mind has a tendency to, to the spin by itself, and with the mindfulness, you ideally one can catch it early, so that you don't go too far into this crazy energy of the mind itself. So those kind of things, um, that's why I'm, I really believe that teaching like social emotional learning, not just meditation, social emotional learning, teaching children to be more aware of their own emotions, recognizing that they are frustrated, recognizing that they are dysregulated, being able to teach them even a simple technique of taking a breath, step, and breathing, that makes a huge difference. Those kind of things will make a difference because these kind of things will allow children to have an ability to exercise that restraint. So I think it's a much more complex um, question. And um, you know, when something like that happens, there's nothing you can do other than to feel sad and express your share in the pain of, of the victims. And also, you know, I, you know, I'm not an American, so it's difficult for me to make comments on American culture. But on the other hand, you know, I live, I'm a Canadian, I live ne next door neighbor. I can't help but make comparisons. I mean, the culture is very much the same. We share the same language. How come things like this happen here and not there. So that has to do with some reality of a distinct American culture where, you know, someone like this 19-year-old man can get an assault weapon and buy it legally. So those things are very complex questions, and my hope is that, you know, especially if you're writing a book, you know, you write really well, and you write for the person on the street, and you talk, you're able to speak their language and get really pulled their, from their heart and challenge them. I think compassion is a discourse that needs to be had now. Because until recently, a large part of the discourse on compassion has been relegated to the religion. And we know that religion's ability to influence public discourse is less and less strong. You look at America's political scene I'm sure pretty much everything you look at is refracted through the lens of compassion, given your training and, and given your work. What role would either compassion training as you teach it, or as you said before, just the simple notion of taking compassion seriously, yeah. 
what role could either of these play given the howling sea of toxicity that is our current political scene? Um, but the, 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 the paradox of compassion is that it is one value that is claimed by people on both sides of political spectrum. Um, so the, at least in principle, there is a promise in the idea of compassion as prov- providing a basis on which people from different political backgrounds and ideology can come together. Um, of course, one of the things in America, uh, and, and you know, generally in the West, and particularly in America, uh, is um, the perceived conflict between societal values on the one hand and the sanctity of the individual freedom. And this is a very kind of Anglo-American kind of struggle. And here, therefore, if we look at the cultural values that are discussed often in the media, especially in the public discourse, and the public discourse tends to be about secular ideas, the values are almost exclusively defined from an individual perspective, you know, sanctity of the individual rights, sanctity of the private property, you know, choice. If you look at each of the values that we in liberal democratic society value, they're actually defined from individuals' perspective. There's hardly any that is defined from a communal, social, societal perspective. And this is something that I would really like to see, and I hope you will take that challenge in your book. How can we develop a discourse where we are able to develop a robust discourse on a value like compassion without somehow being seen as wishy-washy or bringing religion through the back door or something like that. But somehow, because if you, the irony is that if you ask individually, most of us would say, yeah, I value compassion. And most of us would probably believe that I'm kind of a kind person. So which suggests that actually at the individual level, all of us value it, but somehow we haven't learned to develop a public discourse where we can really talk about compassion in a serious way. So I think in the political discourse, the more we're able to bring it, the chances are there will be more common ground to get. But I feel like the word almost has been ground down into meaninglessness through overuse. Partly that, but partly also it has a baggage that is tied to religion. True. Yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I feel like it's the religion, religious people who've been overusing it. Yes, but I mean, part of the problem is up until now or until recently. Does uh, anybody com- even know what compassion means? I mean, I know you do, but you No, I think most people, I mean, most people I would argue will know. For example, most people will know compassion has something to do with someone who is suffering. Compassion has to do with someone who is in need. Compassion has to do with reaching out. Compassion has to do with feeling for. I think most people kind of know what it is. I mean, they may not be able to articulate in a way that is clear and, you know, sort of defined. But I think at a gut level, it's a bit like, you know, we may not be able to define what happiness is, but most of us kind of know what happiness is because we know when we get it. We may not be able to articulate and define it. We kind of know when we're happy. Can I jump for a second? Because I actually think people don't know what happiness is. I think people confuse happiness with excitement. They think when you get what you want, you're happy. 
But of course, that is absolutely ephemeral. It's true. And so that is the opposite of what I would view as happiness as an abiding peace of mind. Or a sense of satisfaction. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, a sense of fulfillment yes. and meaning. Connection, yes. et cetera, sure. et cetera. Sure. Sure, but I mean, even these individuals who tend to define happiness primarily in sensory terms or sense, sensory gratification terms, when they get that deeper sense of ex experience, they will know what it yes, is. Yes, yes. So the seed is there. I mean, Except that the confusion about what makes people happy in turn makes people do a lot of stupid stuff. Yes, yes. I mean, this is one thing about you know, human beings. We, we don't really learn from other people's experience. We have to make the mistakes ourselves. Yeah, it's... Um... So, so, what would you say... So you, you talked about it from a macro level, compassion from a macro level, but what about for those of us who live in this country and may find ourselves on one side? How can we take compassion seriously in a way that would make us better citizens and less crazy and distraught every time we turn on the news? I think one important insight that comes from Buddhism, um, which I think is very helpful in this kind of conversation, is that the, arg the argument that compassion and instinct for kindness is a very fundamental part of who you are. And when you are able to express that, you actually feel gratified. You actually feel happy. You actually feel a sense of purpose. And we all know that even whether it is at our workplace or at home, when we are needed, when we are useful, we feel kind of valued. So this is a very fundamental need that the humans have. Yeah, you, in your book, A Fearless Heart, you talk about the helper's high. Exactly. I yeah. actually have a chapter in my first book called The Self-Interested Case for Not Being a Word That Starts With a D and Ends With a K. <laughs> um, and I think it's true that, that my instinct it's is true. that to talk about compassion as a, from a selfish standpoint is, is the way to go. Exactly. And that's actually what His Holiness promotes. That's, that, yeah. Yes, right. And he says that if you want to be wise, selfish, compassion is the way to go. Mm -hmm. And it's a kind of almost paradoxical. And, you know, sometimes some other people have said, you know, how can Dalai Lama say that it's good to be selfish? And I'm, my argument is, explanation is that he's not advocating selfishness, but he's saying that since pursuit of self-interest is an important the drive that all of us have anyway, then he's making the case that if you take that seriously, then be compassionate. So the point I was trying to make is that since we have that within us, the more we are able to leave, live from that place, the more we are able to view others from that place, the more we are able to view ourselves from that place, our own life becomes more meaningful, more joyful. So that is the self-interest argument. You know, the, the paradox is, in an ideal world, you don't want to be doing compassionate because it's good for you. Because in actual act of compassion, the focus is really the other. You know, whether it is trying to help your kid or whether it's trying to help a poor person, or whether you're trying to help an elderly trying to cross the street. But can't both be true simultaneously? Uh, well, in an actual act of kindness, the conscious motivation is going to be about the other. Yes, but having, transcending your own narrow yeah. self-interest is pleasing in and of itself. Exactly, yeah. And, that, that's, and there's, that's not a contradiction. You know, it's, it's basically 
when we act out of kindness towards a fellow human being, we feel a sense of connection. You know, I mean, at the core of the feeling of compassion is an identification. That's why compassion is very different from pity. Pity tends to look down. You put yourself in a superior place. Whereas compassion tends to be you know, more respectful because you are identifying with the other person. So when you're able to do that, you feel kind of, in some sense, you feel enhanced. You feel kind of ex- expanded. So it is good for you. But in the actual act, from a psychology point of view, the conscious psychology will be really about the other. So back to our political scene. Say I'm um, a pro-Trump, and I, uh, people who love Hillary Clinton drive me crazy. How could compassion be useful for me? I think, I mean, compassion will force you to at least, you know, make you try to move beyond the surface of the differences and try to understand why certain person hold such an opposite point of view so strongly and so deeply. Why are they doing this? And the moment you ask that question, why, then you are able to connect. Because at the, at the, at the basic level, even though two people may be holding a completely different political opinion on a given topic, the reason why they are holding those views, if you start digging deep, they may be the same. You know, they, have, you know, they happen to have a different conception of how society should be structured, how to get there. And the differences are really about the method and the means, not about what. So that allows you, and, and if nothing else, it prevents you from being hateful. And that is a gift in itself, because, because you don't really want to go through the route of hating someone. There's a great expression from the Buddha that, that anger has uh, a honeyed tip. In other words, it feels good, a honeyed tip, but a poison root. Yes. And so it can feel, there can be a little bit of dopamine associated with yeah. you know, sending a mean tweet or whatever. Um, but actually, in my experience, it feels better not to be carrying around a backpack full yeah. of hate yeah, all the time. Yeah. Um, it's, 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 uh, it's tiring. Yes. Yeah, it's basically, it's tiring, yeah. You're listening to Asia In-Depth. Just a quick break here to say that while this conversation took place on our New York stage, we have more than a dozen locations around the world. At the three largest in Hong Kong, Houston, and New York, you can find yoga instruction and guided sessions of meditation, along with all the other great cultural and current affairs programs that Asia Society provides. You can consult our calendar at asiasociety.org events. Now, let's get back to ABC News anchor Dan Harris and the Tibetan Buddhist scholar Tubden Jinpa. Um, so let me ask you about this. Uh, there was this meta-analysis, uh, a, a, a journal article, a, a scientific journal article recently, and they looked at a lot of studies of meditation, not just compassion meditation, but mindfulness meditation, and, uh, well, you'll tell me what they concluded, because you know the study better than me, but I saw all the headlines. I'm going to pull out, because the, <laughs> the headlines were 
amazing. Um, essentially, one of them was meditation does not make you a better person. Um, and there are tons of headlines about, uh, about how meditation basically is complete baloney because it's, it's going to not make you a better person in any way. Is this study onto something uh, or is there a problem here? No, no, I think the study is a very important one, actually. It's a meta-analysis. It's a very, very recent study, uh, and also it's very timely uh, because there's, um, there's a kind of a hype right now. And sometimes the people who are advocates of meditation sometimes give the impression that this is the panacea. That, um, and in fact, at the beginning of that study, uh, I was surprised to see there was a quote attributed to the His Holiness saying that if each... You know, if every child learns to meditate at the age of eight, in a generation, there will be no violence. I mean, His Holiness is not that naive. I don't know how that quote got attributed to him. So there was that. Well, you <laughs> translate for him, so. Um. <laughs> so but I think the, the, the point about that article, uh, I think, is this is one thing about Western consumerist society. When something works, Okay, people then latch on to it. And then they, everybody sort of jumps the bandwagon, and then they start believing almost like a kind of a, well, we call it miracle of mindful meditation. <laughs> so you know, people close their eyes and then expect there is some kind of miracle going to happen. So, uh, so there is that danger. But if you look at the traditional, for example, Buddhist understanding, uh, which is one tradition from where meditation practice came from, but it turns out that even in the Western tradition, there was in the Greek Orthodox Church, there, is a, there used to be a strong meditation tradition. Um, the Catholics it, have centering Catholics, prayer. Yeah, centering pairs and so on. So if you look at the Buddhist tradition, really transformation isn't really seen as just a function of meditation. It really is seen as a function of combining a couple of things. One is knowledge you know, which um, this concept of mind-changing mindset, that is an important part of the Buddhist kind of, you know, idea of one factor for transformation. You need, to, you need to learn to see the world and yourself in a different way. So knowledge is an important part of it. The other one is intention. You need to somehow prime your, you know, kind of, you know, in instincts, prime your behavior in a way that you would want it to be. So there's a conscious intention setting that remembering yourself, the value of compassion on a daily basis, you know, what you value and how you want to live your day. So the Tibetan Buddhists set their intention every morning so that it becomes a sort of, a, it sets the tone for the day. So conscious intention setting is another important point. And the third one is, of course, meditation. And meditation, in the, the way in which it's understood, the tradition is not just a process by which you calm your mind, which is one part of it, and being aware and being staying in this present. But meditation also has another function, which is a process by which you internalize this new way of seeing things so that it gets processed. So the tr transformation of your behavior, which is where you want to see the results, is really seen as function of a combining these three things, Knowledge on the one side, new way of understanding things, internalization of that through meditation, and learning to regulate your own negative emotional re reactions, and then setting your intentions consciously so that you, on a daily basis, make connection with your day-to-day day -day activity and the values that you hold dear. And that's how 
transformations can take place. So this is why in the Cambridge, uh, not Cambridge, the Stanford Compassion Training, which we now offer through a nonprofit organization called Compassion Institute, uh, intention setting is an important part of it. And also having some understanding of the psychology, the basic psychology of the human mind is have, an important part. Have you part studied whether your program changes behavior? Well, there was, you know, in the, in the study that was uh, uh, the meta-analysis, one of the papers that came out of our program was listed there. Uh, but it is, I think it's too early to now look at it. So it's, you know, the, the basic point that the meditation alone does not alter behavior, I think it's a, it's, I think it's a, it's a fair point. But the, even the authors weren't sure, they, they didn't say meditation alone doesn't alter behavior. They basically said, the studies themselves are just not designed well enough. Yeah. It's a problem yeah. with the yes. methodology. Exactly. And, and they were, you know, I mean, the, the one important point they were making was that um, um, mindfulness and compassion meditation do seem to enhance on two pro-social emotions, compassion and empathy, but the effects on prejudice and uh, connectedness and aggression was almost non-existent. So that was an interesting thing, because in, if, if that pans out, it raises a powerful challenge, because one would hope through compassion meditation, you know, the feeling of connectedness with people of a different background would increase, because a key part of compassion meditation is the reinforcement of the recognition of common humanity, so just it- like me. What, no. does, it, does, it, does this give you any, does this create any doubt in your mind about whether what you're teaching works? No, I think it's too early. I mean, right now, many of the meditation research is pretty crude. I mean, it's, more, it's pre and post, and many of them don't have active, um, you know, control uh, comparison. Can you explain that? Because I'm not sure pre and well, post. Well, um, pre and post is basically you uh, <clears throat> test the people before intervention is offered. Typically, there are eight-week programs, MBSR and Stanford Compassion, uh, uh, Compassion Cultivation Training. These are eight-week programs. So you do some tests at the beginning. Then you offer the class, and at the end, you test. So some of these tests may have to do with uh, you know, whether it increases your attention or mindfulness or pro-sociality or empathy or you know, kind of uh, empathy across a different background. You know, for example, like the racial bias, implicit racial bias test is also being used to test that. So this is, but then a good study would actually have an active control group, which is a similar program, similarly structured, but it will be a different program that is offered. So these people will sign up for eight weeks of whatever it is, which involves something different, not the program itself. And then you would also have a waitlisted group who will get the program later, but they are signed in, but they are not given at the moment. So they're just waiting for the program so that there is an anticipation. So that might affect. So you then compare these three in the results. And if there is a significant statistical difference among the groups, then it is saying something. So right now, there are very few programs and research programs that do it because it's costly. So it sounds, like to me, it sounds to me that you strongly suspect that what you're teaching does work and that for 2,600 years that people have been doing compassion meditation, it, has, it hasn't been a waste of time. So, but what about for me as somebody who's about to write a book about compassion for a-holes, can I say 
can I not say, I, do I have to just say right up front, look, we have no evidence that this thing actually works? No, I don't think, I, mean, I, think the, the, I think the point is not about whether compassion meditation works. I think the point is how does it work and what needs to be combined with it. That's the problem. The point I'm trying to make is that sometimes people believe that the meditation is the panacea. If you close your, mind, your eyes and then sit there, something will happen. But what is more important, particularly unlike mindfulness, for compassion-type meditation, even when you close your eyes and meditate, if you're doing compassion meditation, you are actually doing relational exercise. Compassion is always about, uh, even if it is towards yourself, it's a self-to-self relationship. So let me just put some meat on the bun there. So uh, just for people who aren't steeped in how to actually meditate, basic mindfulness meditation is usually sit, eyes closed, back reasonably straight, uh, bring your focus uh, to the feeling of your breath coming in and going out, and then every time you get distracted, start again and again and again and again. Compassion meditation is a different, pretty different modality where you, same posture, but you are uh, envisioning, it's taught differently in different traditions, so I don't yeah. want to say too much about how you teach it because I don't know, but I know how it's taught in the tradition which I've been um, uh, studying, um, where you it, close your eyes and envision people. You usually start with yourself, and then you move to a benefactor, and then a um, uh, close friend, and then a neutral person, somebody you see but overlook often, and then a difficult person, and then everyone. Uh, and in each case, you, send, you repeat silently in your mind a set of very happy phrases, like, may you be happy, may you be safe, etc., etc., and the idea is that just like in mindfulness meditation where you're training your ability to focus and to not be carried away by your emotions so you can see clearly what's happening in your head without getting yanked around by it. So that's what's being trained in, in straight up mindfulness meditation. In compassion meditation, what you're training is your ability to care about other people, to feel connected to other people. And... Um, so anyway, I just want no, to... No, that's say, exactly. Yeah. I mean, this basic pattern is similar. The point I'm trying to make is that even when you are meditating in compassion practice, it's about a relationship. So therefore, compassion, in order for the meditation to work, you actually need to act it out. So you need to, you know, as, a, as, a, as part of your compassion meditation practice, you then need to somehow... Practice it in your everyday life and seize the opportunity whenever an opportunity for kindness arises. So, so, so therefore this, and it, then it, there is a two-way influence that your compassion meditation makes you more aware when opportunities arise because you are consciously thinking of compassion. You are consciously connecting with compassion as part of your intention. You are explicitly making that as one of your most important personal values. So all of this makes, you, makes it easier for compassion to be more pronounced in your mind. So when an opportunity arises, then you, you express it, and that acting out reinforces your meditation. So it needs to be, you know, because the meditation alone is not going to work. Because it's a simulation. Meditation, compassion meditation is a form of simulation. So in order for that simulation, even the pilots who train in simulation, at some point they have to hold the real thing and fly it, you know? 
So the same thing, the the effect of compassion meditation really has to come from doing it on a regular basis. And starting with yourself, people around you, so that you you are less reactive, you are less self-centered, you're more attentive, you're more caring, you're more magnanimous. I think, I mean, this is where I think the intention is the key. Because if... I mean, I have the intention. I mean, the intention needs to be reinforced. That's the thing. Okay. You know, I have... Uh, I was going to talk to you later when we were at dinner that I have, I have an app that I was involved in. And because I'm such a big believer in the conscious setting of your intentions, in the app we have an intention-setting device um, so you choose up to five intentions, and then you set your timer for a reminder. And then, uh, for example, like one of the things that I ended up doing lately was, um, you know, at home after five thirty, around five thirty, I ended up liking looking for a glass of wine. And ideally, I wouldn't want to drink during the weekdays. And uh, but my wife is French Canadian, and my in-laws are. They love wine and food and stuff. So, so I've got into the habit of kind of taking a glass of wine regularly, which some people say it's good for your health, but I don't really like it that much. <laughs> so uh, after this app, I, that was my first intention, which says avoid drinking at home during weekdays. Come 5.30, it pings me, reminds me. So then I check whether I was successful or not, and then I track it across time. So... This is how, and it works, because what you're doing is instead of trying to suppress it by avoiding thinking about it, you're confronting it like in a mindfulness type approach. So, so I would have a reminder that pings me every day at 5.30, don't be an a-hole, and I would check whether I have been <laughs> Exactly. Today. Yeah. Really, it would be that simple. It would be the, that's why in the, the Tibetan idea is that set your intention in the morning, yeah. and in the evening you quickly review it. No, I actually do this because I read yeah. your book, and so I yeah. do do what you suggest. And it makes a difference. I, yeah. I, I, well, I, we'll have to give my wife <laughs> So the point is that one needs to have a bit more nuanced understanding of how meditation is supposed to work, especially like compassion meditation, because just closing your eyes and imagining is not going to do the trick. It needs to be reinforced by acting it out. And then one of the beauties of acting it out is that when you help someone, there's a joy that comes with it. And joy is what sustains your motivation. Because it makes you feel good. It enhances you. This is really important because I learned in my most recent book, the one we ran the video clip about, um, so I wrote 10% Happier about four years ago, then I just wrote a book called Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. And the goal of the second book was to get people to actually do the thing. And I had to learn a lot about behavior change science and uh, habit formation. And what I learned was that willpower, just saying you want to do something and gritting your teeth and aiming to do it, is a terrible strategy. And that fact, if you can tap into the minds, to the brain's reward system, then actually you can create sustainable abiding habits because it becomes pleasurable to do. Definitely. So I found that, that for me, being less of a jerk actually does feel good on the level of the mind in the moment you're doing it. Yes. Just take the moment of holding the door open for somebody. If you're paying attention, it feels reasonably good. That is, in my view, infinitely scalable. Definitely. Yeah, def- I think that this is one area where the new science of motivation is very uh, interesting because um, 
sometimes, and this is one area where sometimes religion really sort of shows its lack of understanding of human psychology because it tends to hammer and, and hammer and hammer and hammer and, it's, and people who don't do it are seen as somehow weak, weak-willed. And, and you're right, uh, the science shows us that expecting too much from your strength of your will is not a long-lasting approach because it is exhausting. You know, if you rely too heavily on your will, uh, so therefore having a strategy, I mean, this is one of the reasons why, for example, the, you know, the many of the things that we learn from Buddhism actually were initially designed to help the monks. You know, Buddhism initially was a monastic religion. It was designed to help the monks how to live their daily life without too much effort because there are so many precepts. So mindfulness practice, meta-awareness practice, these are all there so that the monks, and then they memorize all the precepts. So you don't... Precepts are basically the rules for being... Yeah, rules. And then you live your life because you create a structure so that you don't rely just on the exertion of will all the time. So I think here the joy and sense of fulfillment is really key. I mean, it's, you can push with your will to initially get motivated, but to sustain it, will doesn't carry you there. If you're compassionate, are you going to get plowed over by your nihilistically cruel boss? Uh, no, I, I, well... If you, if you act out of compassion in a wise way, that shouldn't happen. Because you should have the composure to be able to tell the boss at the right time that was not a nice thing to do. So I think it's important because sometimes, you know, uh, and this is where the Buddhist tradition insists that Compassion should be combined with wisdom. Because kindness alone is not the answer. Well, the, Buddhist, the Tibetans have an expression, idiot compassion. Yes, yeah. I mean, we could sometimes call it misplaced compassion, but right. idiot compassion is Much probably funnier. a Go more... with the sec, go with the idiot. <laughs> Just from a so, branding perspective, uh, idiot is way So worse. I think, you know, that being compassionate does not mean that you give in. But... Being compassionate requires you to... I mean, what it does require is to give the other person the benefit of the doubt, that you don't immediately rush to judgment. That's what we normally tend to do. So you don't immediately rush to judgment. You give the other person the benefit of the doubt. But on a closer look, if what the other person has done was not only mean, but actually done intentionally, then you do need to stand up. But you can do so without losing your composure because you understand the reason why this person did it is he or she is doing it from a place of pain. And given the choice, the person may not want to do it. But sometimes, because they're in a more powerful position, they tend not to see that what they're doing is not the right thing. One last question for me, and then I want to open it up. in, traditionally, in compassion meditation, and I don't know if this is true for how you teach it, but I think it is, having read your book, that you usually start with, or somewhere along the way, sometimes you start with, or sometimes you build to, compassion for yourself. Yes. A lot of people really struggle with that. Uh, why is it so important? 
Um, I mean, this is this is a very interesting. Um, I, by the way, question, have no actually. no problem with it. Yeah, <laughs> this is a very interesting question. Actually, the first protocol that I developed when I was at Stanford used the traditional format. So we begin with we begin with a little bit of mindfulness type practice to settle your mind and basic meditation skills, then self, then a loved one, and then so on. But then the teacher who taught it to undergraduates, he and I sat down after he taught it twice, and he said many students were just struggling. They just get stuck there. So it turns out that in the West, self-compassion is for some strange reason a real challenge for many people. That somehow they just, even some people have aversive reaction to thinking about the offering phrases to yourself saying, may I be happy? You know, may I find peace? There's a kind of a aversive reaction even to thinking about that phrase directed to oneself. So, but my own feeling is that I don't think you need self-compassion to have compassion for others because I would argue compassion for others is a more fundamental human trait than for self because we are social creatures. You know, right from word get-go, we are always latching on to, you know, if a child is latching on to a mother, you know, there's a, there's a relationship is what defines us. So your perception of the other is probably more fundamental and relationship with others more fundamental. So I would argue compassion for others is probably more fundamental uh, um, impulse than for self. But to sustain compassion for a long time, long term, if you don't have a basic level of self-compassion, then you can't sustain compassion for too long because at some point you get burned out. And then not only that, worst thing is that as a result of not having self enough self-compassion, you start resenting the people for whom you have given so much of your life, feeling that somehow they are the ones who made me suffer, they were ungrateful. Whereas if you have a degree of self-compassion, then it acts as a kind of a you know, buffer against that kind of exhaustion. So I would argue that in order to have sustained compassion for many other, others, you do need a fairly solid basis of self-compassion. Our thanks to Dan Harris and Tupton Jinpa, and thanks to all of you for listening. In next week's episode of Asia In-Depth, my conversation with one of the world's great scholars on China, our very own Orville Schell. Schell looks at changes in the U.S.-China relationship through the prism of two presidential summits between the United States and China, one in 1998, the other nearly 20 years later. Here's a sneak peek. Tiananmen Square was a giant obstruction to everybody's uh, ability to feel comfortable with each other. And yet, in that summit, uh, you know, they, they met in the Great Hall of the People after a big honor guard uh, uh, greeting outside the, in Tiananmen Square. And quite extraordinarily, Jiang Zemin decided at the very last minute, that the press conference, which would have an open question and answer period with the media from all over the world, would be broadcast live on radio and television. This is something that would be unimaginable today. I'm Tom Nagorski. We'll see you next time.